We recently launched Liberation Martial Arts Online for trainers, collectives, and individuals that were looking for a program to follow that was chud-free or perhaps one that came directly from us. Thanks to Eric Grant McEachern, Samuel Dreyer, and Haven the Haitian for signing up. If you would like to sign up for Liberation Martial Arts Online or you just want to increase your financial support for the Southpaw Project, you can find special tiers on our Patreon. If you'd like to listen to all of our shows without any breaks or interruptions, you can find uncut versions of our shows also on Patreon. This is Sam. This is Jason. And this is Fight Study. This episode was produced by S.H., M. Shelton, and New Guy. Fight Study is back. We had some fun fights and one gigantic fight this past weekend. We had UFC Sanhagen versus Song, and we also had Canelo versus Triple G3. And to help us break all of this down, we have Coach Jason back. Good to have you back, Jason. Glad to be back. Let's first talk about Canelo versus Triple G3 with Canelo winning a unanimous decision. Two of the judges, though, had it pretty close. But Jason, was it that close? No, by no means was it that close. I mean, Triple G looked uh, uh, his normal, durable self, but there wasn't enough activity and he didn't do much more than jab throughout most of the fight and against a, a younger, more explosive, more dynamic uh, puncher in Canelo, you need to do more than that. And I think that that was obvious in just about every round, except maybe round nine. When Triple G did find his moments, it seemed like he didn't want to throw real power behind his shots so that he could get back into a defensive stance right away. Why was he hesitating? Well, I think he's got enough self-awareness to understand that where he is at 40 years old and where Canelo Alvarez is at 32 years old are miles apart. So um, being the kind of puncher that that Triple G was and sort of still is, um, you have the ability to, to punch into position. You don't want to punch yourself out of position against someone that is as explosive and a strong counter puncher like Canelo. So I think he had that, that idea that if he could, he's, he's still durable even at 40 years, years old. He's got like a cast iron jaw. And the fighting behind a jab will help him pace himself throughout. I think that was the calculus going forward. Um, other than that, I'm not, I'm not sure like, what, what he really had in mind other than, you know, let's keep it close. I still have that, that, that old man strength and can find that one hitter quitter. Maybe. I don't think you're going to find it on Canelo ever. But I think that's probably the calculus he was making at that point. Was Triple G finding any success or was it all just a part of the give and take in a fight where even when you're losing, so long as you're in the fight, statistically, you will just get moments like you roll dice enough and you will occasionally land two sixes? I mean, yeah, I mean, that's that's always a possibility, right? And you take into consideration, as I just said, Triple G's durability um, and his his ring savvy. He's been around a long time. So Canelo was better early, you know, with the rounds, especially the first two. 
were not blowouts by any means. You know, Triple, J, Triple G may even believe he won some of them. I think he said that he thought he might have won the fight, which is sort of crazy in my opinion because I think it's pretty clear he did not. But when you have an explosive fire like Canelo, you see that explosiveness have an effect on cardio much of the time. So later in the fight, Triple G, like I said, is savvy enough to do a few things when he recognizes it. But at 40 years old, he's just a little too long in the tooth to really capitalize. So yeah, he did have his moments and he recognized some things. But you know, my, my concern, and I think this is the calculus from Triple G and his camp, imagine if he did try to bank some of those, those rounds early and he gassed at 40 years old against Canelo Alvarez. Now, you don't want to be in that position. You know, as at, Triple G has a great chin, but he still got hit with some solid power punches from Canelo. If some of those shots start to double up and triple up, then that can be problematic, especially later in the fight when there's already an accumulation of, of some damage against a, a, a fighter in Canelo who can still crack. Now, there is talk that Canelo fades in the second half of his fights. This is a fairly new criticism because before, it used to be that he was a slow starter. But do you think this is fair, or was he beating Triple G from beginning to end? Well, he beat Triple G from beginning to end. He did. But some of that, some of that criticism has some fairness, but the, the type of fighter that Canelo is, he's explosive, and he punches hard often. He puts a lot into almost all his shots. So I think there is a calculation to take some off, maybe take a round off, um, and sort of regroup and refocus and get some of those, you know, phosphogenic stores replenished and, uh, and, and maybe go again as opposed to gassing out. I think he understands that pace and banking some rounds early, you know, behind both his name and activity. He, he tends to push it a little bit more than those, uh, especially Triple G when he's in there in the earlier rounds. So if he can start banking, at least in this last fight, um, if he can bank those rounds and, you know, has, he has good physical tools, but he's been in the game a long time too. And he's got some fight IQ and some ring savvy as well. So, um, you know, taking a round off or maybe not push, uh, putting his foot on the gas the entire time allows him to maintain his composure later in the fight, still find some big shots and be exciting. He doesn't necessarily coast. Um, but, you know, you, if, you want, if you're a power puncher, you want that power late. And sometimes that means taking off an eighth or a ninth round. So I think that's that's what you see with him on occasion. But I wouldn't say that that conditioning, except one time he came in looking a little bit more muscular than usual. And we all know that the greater muscularity, the greater the ox- oxygen usage, and you know that's going to have a, you know a detrimental effect to muscular endurance. But I don't th- I don't see. I think he's too well trained and has too good of a camp for that to ever be too much of an issue. Wasn't that why for a long time? trainers especially the old school boxing trainers didn't want their fighters to touch any weights because they didn't want them to get too muscular because they thought that would have them gas out more or make it harder to cut weight because they might bulk up too much uh, it's a combination of those things and also they believe that it would make them stiff and slow and it can it absolutely can if you're training them the wrong way um fight science and exercise science have come so far in the last 20 years and I mean, I don't want to shit on any of the old school theories and philosophies because a lot of them do ring true. But if, you ha- if you're not continuing to learn where we were 25 years ago in the strength and conditioning world for combat sports, including boxing, is nowhere near where we are now. There's such a greater understanding of 
physiology and kinesiology as applied to fight science. So what is a way to lift weights that might accidentally make you slower? I mean, if you're, if you're stuck in the hypertrophic rep, rep range and you're doing uh, certain movements that, um, I mean, especially for boxing, if you're doing, um, if you're doing heavy benches and you are th- too thick in the chest and the, in- the inability to sort of rotate across body because you're too, too bulky and too stiff, if your shoulders, I mean, and you want some shoulder development, but you want that endurance and you don't want bulky, um, larger muscles that are going to carry more blood causing uh, uh, both the lactic acid buildup and an early onset fatigue. And some of these fighters can look great and still carry like, I call it an 85% of maximum capacity, you know, in terms of like explosiveness, but they can never rest and get back to a hundred. Some fighters are so gifted that their 85% looks great, but you should be able to rest in between rounds and be able to get back to 85, 90, 95 you know, and still have some explosion and some significant output. So many of these fighters, and for a while it was those those training and utilizing like fight gone bad and other CrossFit style workouts. But the fight science, we even now I can't give you a one size fits all approach because it depends what that fighter needs. What are his strengths? What are his deficits? What are we trying to build out on him? A fighter like like Anthony Joshua may not require the same kind of strength and conditioning as a fighter like Ryan Garcia. You know, one is naturally carrying a lot more muscle. The other probably has a frame where he could use, uh, he could use a little bit more to solidify himself on the inside. If he, especially if he's going to go against, uh, you know, Javante Davis. So that kind of thing, you know, look at the needs of the fighter and their attributes and how you can bring out the best of, their strengths and sort of mitigate the de- the deficits as much as possible or improve upon them if at all. So the typical bodybuilding type workouts or the workouts they give you in those men's fitness magazines or bodybuilding.com might be more for physique building, like you said, hypertrophy, but might not be the best for fighters because the goal of that is size, right? But fighters shouldn't be necessarily training and conditioning for size they want to be training and conditioning for performance oh absolutely so i mean you can look great but i mean it it means nothing if the 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 newly found muscle that you've developed isn't working for you. you can get you can get strong looking without getting really strong i mean normally that strength increase will follow but maybe not to the to the benefit of your athletic performance as true strength training geared towards power and explosion. Or if you're a, a good jabber and you want the ability to, to retract and step and retract and step back into that jab again and again, and then you're hitting bodybuilding is going to be about balance and symmetry. If we're throwing three jabs to come boom, back downstairs with a straight right to the body and then back up with the left hook, We've just used our left arm four times, our right arm one, um, you know, trying to, to create some sort of like absolute muscle symmetry from a right-handed boxer with a left foot lead. Um, like you're, just, you're, just, you're just not going to do it. So uh, those same principles, uh, I mean, if, there, if anyone tries to apply them, it's, um, it, it's a fool's errand at this point. The fight science has come too far. Even bodybuilders will tell you, on the day they look their best, like on competition day, they're at their weakest 
because they're so dehydrated. They have no body fat on them to like keep them going. So they're doing everything they can to perform their best. But then when they're done, they're like shaking, right? They're just so weak. So looking your best isn't about necessarily athletically performing your best because you're so dehydrated. You're so low on body fat. And often you're just low on food. You don't have enough calories in you. Oh, absolutely. Now you're speaking to training for the aesthetic versus training for the performance, right? If if the goal is to lose body fat, then we everyone knows at this point that insulin is going to be uh, an obstacle in, in the enemy of losing body fat. So if you have an insulin spike, your body is going to be burning sugar for fuel or glycogen for fuel and not fat. But if you want a good Perform, try, try running a marathon with no, with no carbohydrate or no glycogen in you. That's going to suck. So what, what is training to strip body fat off you is not necessarily training for performance. Athletic performance and the aesthetic are different things. So you need to sort of program and uh, call, it, call it periodization when you're going to um, approach like a fat loss when we're going to have you don't want a fat loss day on your sparring day. You're an asshole if you're doing that. You know, if you don't put the calories in your, your fighter to, to propel them through the, that kind of intensive training against someone that wants to fight them back, well, then you're just nuts. So understanding that there's a difference between the aesthetic performance, weight loss, um, and an athletic and explosive um, output type of performance. Now for amateur and hobbyist fighters, is there anything we can learn from Canelo and Triple G as far as good habits? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, considering we have to take age into account, right? He's forty-year-old Triple G fighting a thirty-two-year-old Canelo Alvarez, who's still one of the best in the game. Yeah, but you, you can see that that a great chin and a pretty good jab uh, can make a fight closer than it really is, or at least appear that way, or even a lot closer than it should be. You know, but. As you and I just discussed, the key takeaways, I think, are probably conditioning and pace. When I say this, just imagine, just like I said before, if Triple G fought the second half of that fight overly fatigued. If you try and fight Canelo gassed, it's going to get real fucking ugly really fast, even if you have a, tr a chin like Triple G. So understanding pace, understanding um, who you're in there with, and the ability to make some calculated decisions. Um, I think Triple G is the type of fighter that believes in his power. Um, but if there's like a one in one A in terms of fighters who were born with an otherworldly chin, it's Triple G and Canelo. So I, I get it. Triple G has, you know, has the goods to to thump, but Canelo can really take a shot as well. He really, really can. He's shown it time and time again. Um, so if you're intelligent enough to fight behind a jab and you have the the durability, you know, you can put yourself in a position to to make the fight closer than it, than it, than it really looks. Now let's talk about Corey Sandhagen versus Yadong Song, where Sandhagen won by TKO after the fourth because of a cut. Now this was a big step up for Song, who was number 10 going into this fight, fighting the number four fighter. And I thought this was going to be an easy fight for Sandhagen, especially because of how Kyler Phillips beat Song. And though Sandhagen won, I definitely thought this was a winnable fight for Song. Jason, what did you think about this fight? Well, I'm going to steal a quote from UFC Bantamweight champion Aljamain Sterling here. And he wrote on Twitter, high level and violent. And I think that that's the most accurate way to describe this fight. 
And quite honestly, it was it was as violent as it was high level. And it was super fun to watch because of that. You know, both fighters showed really, really strong offense and diversity of attacks. Sanhagen uh, mixed in wrestling attacks, stance switches, elbow punches, elbows, punches, kicks, knees, you name it. And even some excellent takedown attempts, even though he, though he, he failed on many of them, that kept the probably more powerful song uh, honest. And, uh, you know, and I say it every episode, when MMA is done correctly, when it is done right, when you do the right shit, it could be technical and violent. And in my opinion, that's when we get some of the most spectacular finishes and most impressive matchups in this fucking sport. Song gave up a lot of reach. How was he overcoming that? Well, Sanhagen started the fight initially with, with a lot of forward pressure. And Song did an excellent job of giving just a little bit of ground before stepping back in with some counter shots. And though Song doesn't have the best jab in the world, he used it somewhat effectively when he did throw it early. All the credit to Corey Sanhagen for adjusting very, very quickly and giving more ground of his own more often to make his reach and his length more effective. But when, when Corey decided to come forward and sort of pressure on the lead, that's when you know Song did a good job of giving up some ground, fighting off the back foot, hitting a drop, step dropping, giving a little bit of a pivot, and finding some shots of his own. What was Sanhagen doing to give Song problems? Um, you know, giving ground, obviously. But the I think the real story is the diversity of attacks. Um, knees and elbows against the cage. Knees and elbows at fucking distance, right? Excellent footwork, stance shifting and switching. Left hook to the body off of an educated jab. You know, and let's be honest, if, if Corey didn't have a fucking chin like he does, you know, any of the first three left hooks that Song landed could have been game changers and we could have been discussing Song, Song pulling off a really, really big upset. Oh. But, you know, I also really enjoyed how, how Corey stuck to a game plan that included takedown attempts. Even though he fell short on what, his first eight or nine? You know, the threat of the takedown and those intercepting elbows became really problematic for Song, no doubt. Song does get taken down, and he got taken down a lot against Kyler Phillips. So how did his takedown defense and counter-wrestling look? His counter-wrestling looked absolutely fantastic. He wasn't overly committing to coming forward with his, with his forward pressure in his straight right hand or his left hook uh, with over-committing on that torque and turn, which exposes your lead hip and makes you a lot easier to take down. He was resetting even when he was throwing big and he seems to have the reflexes and vision i'll say this again he's 24 years old that kind of vision is probably going to improve his reflexes at least for the next six years will probably improve so i i i think that um the the improvements in takedown defense and timing and reaction time and timing on some of his wrestling counters are only going to get better. You know, they already look great. He's at a good camp for it. And, you know, the offensively, we all we all know that he has the goods anyway. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content like early releases of Southpaw Deep Space Nine, break-free versions of our shows without interruptions, like you're hearing now, Liberation Martial Arts Online, as well as our private chat group on Discord. You can also make one-time donations at Ko-Fi, or show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. 
Yeah, he seemed to do a lot with the wizard, which you see fighters just grab a wizard because that's what you learn. Overhooks, underhooks, overhooks, you wizard, right? These are just generic terms that fans have come to expect in a fight. But instead of just going for it, instead of doing it in a generic way, Song was actually using it well. So what was he doing with the wizard that you don't always see fighters do? So the one time he did get taken down, he used that wizard right to what a shin shield or he put that shin across the belly and he used it immediately to create a little bit of space and just scoot and get back to his feet almost immediately. You know, so he's not giving up position on takedowns and he's giving himself a fighting chance. He's also not just holding on to a wizard while the guy with the underhook is continuing to improve position. He's got a wizard. He'll shift his head position against the cage. He'll do that little chin rip and rotate off. And he'll continue to use that because he's he, he seems real physically strong. I've never wrestled the guy, but he looks fucking strong. And you know, he moves he moves fighters who look who are very very physical. He moves them very well, and not just an explosive fashion, but like a um, like a constrictive and like strong push off type of fashion. So I think he has like he has some fuck you strength to him. So when you have when you have that ability to improve position technically understanding the positions because he looks like a student of the game his head position against the cage was good against a really scrappy Corey sanhagen who was doing a hell of a job at putting song against the cage and using great positioning to score and solidify rounds so you just saw like a, a great back and forth from them both that caused some that caused like some higher level reactions to be necessary from that wizard or that overhook position and the over under position against the cage that pummel position um, from both fighters. And it was just really, really good to see from a, a technical aspect where most fighters are saying, oh, that wrestling shit's boring or that, that all he did was push me against the cage and stall. Well, then don't be there. You're allowed, <laughs> you're allowed to elbow from those positions. Both fighters did. You're allowed to knee from those positions. Both fighters did. Because you're not as good as they are, you were boring. These fighters were in that position and they weren't fucking boring. So who's that on, right? You keep trying to change the rule and cry to Uncle Janet Dana to fucking change them, but get better at those positions, and you will do better in those positions, and they won't be so fucking boring for you or anybody else. So for listeners, can you explain and talk us through the wizard? So if someone's trying to beat you to your hip, the wizard is going to keep, it's going to do two things, maybe even three or four. It's going to block them from continuing to get the angle because you get the block on the inside, you get to also pull them up either off the knee to the hip or off the hip, you know, around the waist, or you continue to bring them up the body. And then you start to dig your either opposite side underhook, or you can dig your same to go from wizard to an underhook of your own. Um, it's, it, it's got a ton of utility in wrestling and MMA, and you can turn it into sort of like a, a hip block or a waist block. So they can't continue to, to pursue an angle. You can create pressure. And if they start to push through, you get a little whip, and then we have an Uchimata toss off of it. It just has a ton of utility. And the better you get at sort of understanding that position and the leverage you can you can attain from it, like the the, the more of a of a difficult task you will be to take down against the cage. And even if you are taken down against the cage, you're gonna see that you know they had to work harder to make that happen. And at the same time, you can release that overhook if you pull them up to that high body lock position and they're continuing to just dig under hooks. And if they don't have the appropriate head position or you fight and 
create a little hip pressure and a little hip resistance and you move and shift, you've got your overhook side elbow if their head is on the side of that underhook, like a lot of wrestlers are taught. And if they get lazy with that head position, you can carve them up with an elbow and then immediately dig an underhook back of your own and continue to, to wrestle fight from there. Not just wrestle. If the wrestling isn't there, find knees. If the, the knees aren't there, find elbows. Like if you take what's available and continue to you know, progress based on what shows itself. What could Sandhagen have done to finish some of those takedowns? Or did he not even care about completion? I don't think that he really fully cared about completion. He wanted to keep a, a, an aggressive power puncher honest. And he was able to do that. And uh, I'm not sure which round it was, but whenever he failed on the initial entry, but he continued driving back against to the cage, he just kept his feet moving, kept crawling forward, then eventually got that Khabib leg pinch position. Um, and again, he took a guy who like, was dangerous because he was cut and also has a hell of a left hook and a straight right hand and was able to nullify the, the ability for him to punch in open space when really that was most likely Song's only route to winning at that point in the fight. So, you know, um, the beauty of what San Hagen did was a commitment to that wrestling game and use it to create better positions. And as I said before, he scored with elbows and knees in these positions. And when he didn't stay in, um, in control and took away some of the explosive striking of, of Song at the same time, you know, it was technical and intelligent, well, in my opinion, being very goddamn entertaining. You know? So in, in, in Song at 24 years of age, let's just say this, with all his physical skills and technical acumen, there's a good chance that he may be champion one day. And my thought is, if he ever is, he'll probably have to go through Corey Sanhagen, who at 30 years old, will probably, I think if he fought um, Dillashaw in a rematch, I think he wins. I think... Sanhagen is continuing to improve, um, and he just looks better and better every time out. To your point about using the takedowns to set other things up, it seemed like Song was doing a good job keeping his high guard up, protecting his face. He was being really responsible about that, really disciplined. And even with the body shots, Song wasn't dropping his guard. He was trying to protect his face. So the only way that Sanhagen was getting him to drop that high guard was when he was faking a shot or going for the shot. Yeah, that's it. You want to elicit a reaction. You want to elicit a response from a fighter, a fighter, especially the fighter who has to protect his eye, right? Or and Sanhagen has a great jab. He has a great shifting one-two. He's got a good like um, decoy jab to or a short jab to a step through right hand. He got a great decoy jab to a left hook to the body. So the the more you can get someone to elicit hands high because they got to either protect that eye, you're paying attention to what else is available. And a lot of times what was available is an entry to a double leg or a single leg. And whether he got it or not, he still attempted it. And it took away some of the, the offense and counter offense of song. Same principle being that, that jab where he just jab, throws a jab and just touches your guard so that he can come underneath that right elbow and touch you to the fucking liver. You know, it's beautiful from a guy who is, what is he? I mean, I don't know his natural skill set, but I can't tell what his natural skill set is. If, if San Hagen is a natural grappler or a natural striker, because he looks pretty fucking good at both at this point. Yeah, to your point, he was doing a good job, not even trying to like penetrate Song's guard sometimes with his jab. He was purposely just touching his forearms 
to make sure that Song would keep his guard up and then hit him to the body, right? So sometimes he wants him to drop the guard by faking a shot or going for a shot, which makes the fakes work even better. Or sometimes he wants him to stay committed to the high guard by just tapping him there, like, make sure you're blocking your face. You know how somebody holding the mitts will do that? Keep your guard up, keep your guard up. Like a kind of a mitt holder style, keep your guard up type of jab just to hit him to the body. So it was like, so many things were happening. How are you supposed to fight this guy? It's a really, really difficult task. And I know exactly the sequence you're talking about. I've seen him do it multiple times. He threw one nice jab that was stiff to the guard. And then he threw this like little slapping, I don't, almost like a check hook where all he did was sort of pull down the hand, but it wasn't to come back with another left side attack. He just shit off and he put a right hand, boom, right to the body. And he was at an angle where he wasn't in an immediate threat. Um, without Song shifting off and rotating his shoulders and hips because he was facing Song, but Song was no longer facing him. And you can do a body attack from that angle. Like that's where you want to be, where an approach where you're not you're not lined up for a counterattack, but your opponent is still in front of you. If you can create those fucking positions, by all means, do that as much as you can. And I think that that Corey Sanhagen really understands that at this point. Now Song was doing well in the first two rounds, even rocking Sanhagen. But in round two, Song suffered a nasty cut, which eventually ended the fight. If you watch that moment again, there was first a grazing of the heads, followed by an elbow by Sanhagen on that exact spot. Then it just exploded. But when you get a cut like that, it's so hard to win because it's a race against the clock, because eventually the doctor is going to stop it. So when that happens, you have to change your game plan, right? No, absolutely. I mean, the, the problem is the problem is that the change you usually have to make is an aggression change, right? You have to pick up your aggression. And Sanhagen was intercepting Song's aggression. And the beauty is that you don't need a lot of those intercepting knees and elbows, just a couple of really well-timed ones. So when Song is forced to come forward with increased aggression and increased consistency, you know, Corey Sanhagen, as good of a fighter as he is with his visual acuity and his like reactive counters and intercepting counters, Corey's able to find those shots. You know, that's and I think that that was the the true story of the fight is that the what Song what got Song in trouble, even though it was really working for him at times, was his aggression. He came forward and got clipped with that up elbow. Right. And then um, once that cut was as bad as it was, he had to be aggressive and keep coming forward. And that's sort of what what got him in trouble in the first place. When in the first round, he was having a lot of success, giving a little bit of ground and he wasn't going to win a fight with that kind of gash right above his is what is that? His left eyebrow um, with that many that many rounds left. So. He already has a reach disadvantage, right? He's the shorter man and he's got a cut. So he can't just sit back and hit his opponent with jabs. And he also has to worry about the cut getting worse. So he not only had to come forward, but he also had to keep his hands up the whole time and be defensive while coming forward. Plus, you can only see out of one eye because of the blood. So what can you do at this point? There's not a whole lot of options. You know, a fighter, a fighter really has to tap into their toughness and grit. And most importantly, their ability to suspend the brain's typical inclination for self-preservation. And that's what, that's what Song did. And he did it very well. And he kept coming forward. And he still had his moments, even though he was visually impaired by 
a shit ton of blood that was constantly flowing in his eye. And it was as impressive as it was inspiring for sure. My one concern is like, it almost seemed like they weren't maybe, they were maybe not going to stop it for a second. Like, the, yeah. the, the, I'm like, what more needs to be done to a 24 year old fighter's eyeball? Like, before you stop that fight, he only has two. You know, at what point are we risking like significant injury to a 24 year old fighter who has a very, very bright career ahead of him? Um, you know, and, and, and for what? For, you know, for what? You know, to, to appease the, the just bleed assholes. I mean, that was my only concern. But in terms of like what he had to do to stay in to to stay in it, he did what he had to. You know, he took his nuts, threw them over his shoulder, and walked in the fucking fire like it was his job. And he did it without hesitation. And it, that's that cut was bad. It was really really bad. Um, but I don't want to to harp on on the UFC or even the corner. But I mean, kid's twenty four years old. Right, he's a young man. I'll say the the young man is twenty four years old. He has a pretty bright career ahead of him. That fight or that cut was in a very bad spot. But it seems like a good reminder for fighters that the only way to end a fight isn't just by KO or submission. If you could cut a fighter early, even if the fight doesn't end right there, it seems like you're ninety percent there, right? Because now they have to change so much to try to fight you, which in a way then makes it easier for you to beat them. And it's also only a matter of time before that cut gets bad enough where somebody has to stop the fight. So thinking about cutting a fighter should be then a strategy for MMA fighters as well going forward, right? It should be. And that's why I don't understand this aversion to like the clinch position against the cage or those pummel positions or those dirty wrestling positions against the cage. You can find really, really good knees. You can start to rip the shit out of the body. And when that head starts to dip or when they start to rotate their hips to protect the side that just got attacked, short little elbows show themselves and you can score there. And whenever other, when, when athletes are trying to, or when fighters are trying to wrestle you, you can start fighting them. If they don't want the overhook because you're beating them so strongly with the underhook and they pummel inside, they aren't attacking you with that hand. Now your overhook side is free and you can elbow off that. So you're allowed to, you're allowed to elbow, right? Or you're, you're formerly your underhook side, whatever side becomes available, you can score there and you don't just stand in front and allow them to elbow you back. You give them a little bit of an, a little bit of a, a door to try to push back through. You bump them a little bit. You get them trying to fight back. Bang! Then you score. You control that wrist. You rotate your elbow up top, and you start scoring. And if they want to fight it or they want to push their arm out because they're afraid of that elbow, watch the body present itself. So you start to take what's available, and that that requires the some some conditioning. It requires some fight IQ. It requires a, a camp that is going to put you in that position and allow you to continue to score there not either overly wrestle or simply stall, but there is a whole world of fighting that takes place in there. Paul Felder was an absolute master at it. It was, it was a thing of beauty to watch him hurt people against the cage. It was a thing of beauty to watch him like pulverize wrestlers that were so much better than him in that position because they were wrestling and he was fighting. And that's a concept these fighters need to understand. You are put in a bad position and you stop fighting that includes a closed guard. That includes a, a crying to the ref that he's just stalling. That means you've stopped fighting. 
a continuation of fighting and fight sequences will typically open doors for you and allow you to be more offensive. So it's incumbent upon you to train them, know them, and be conditioned enough to fucking implement them. If not, some of them need to just shut the fuck up. <laughs> because there is a beautiful world of technical violence in that space, right? In that space against the cage. What I've noticed is as we've gone more and more towards just knockouts or trying to win like a points battle and looking for a lot of spam attacks so that you're ahead of your opponent on volume, something disappeared that I used to see a lot in MMA fights years ago, which is like, to your point, dirty boxing, not just in clinch, but sometimes just using the jab, just trying to graze your opponent. So we're talking about cutting your opponent with just elbows, right? Sometimes you might be able to cut them with a knee. But back in the day, a lot of fighters, because you were wearing smaller gloves, would try to just graze their opponent with the glove over and over to try to just cut them up. That's why a lot of the older fighters have so much scar tissue on their brows and their forehead, which I don't think younger fighters are having that same problem because the fighting style has changed. Yeah. Back then, people were just trying to scrape you and just do these kind of grazing uppercuts, these grazing punches with the edges of the gloves to just try to cut you up. So what I'm noticing now is you're not seeing the same kind of cuts you used to see back in the day from punches. It either has to be a really bad elbow or an occasional knee. But before, fighters weren't trying to always knock you out. They were just trying to like scrape you with their gloves, almost using the gloves as a weapon. Yeah, well, the, seeing the evolution go multiple ways has been an interesting like sort of like social uh as a, a, an interesting study from like a social science perspective and we went through that just bleed stage where like all technique got thrown out the window and then we got the neo footwork stage where <laughs> it seemed like it was really really cool but sort of a race to nowhere you know but and now you have like the old fighters that would no one had any head movement, so you can jab up, jab them up, like bang, 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 bang. And then you realize if you threw too many jabs, you'd get wrestled. So now all of a sudden we had these these wrestling overhand writers winning and going through their, you know, their phase where they were the dominant, uh, the dominant technique um, or dominant style for a while. Seeing that evolution has been really, really cool. But and I think that's why like the the this being uh, a fight study on Corey Sanhagen is is so really cool for me is because this is a guy who I don't think really had a ton of wrestling chops going in shooting takedown after takedown after takedown after he landed like the the mo world's most beautiful flying knee against uh poor Frankie Edgar and he's landed so many like sweet techniques and he's able to solidify a win against an up-and-coming top tenor in song by having a diversified game plan using multiple um skill sets to sort of you know stymie the rhythm of like i said a really solid up-and-coming talent and song if you love the southpaw project become one of our financial supporters it'll help us supplement the cost of running this project the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle southpaw with our day jobs but also to expand southpaw into other areas we can't exist without your contributions. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at southpawpod.com. Now, even though this was his first five-round fight, Song showed he has the fitness to go all five rounds. 
and he doesn't seem to lose power. Something I notice as to why some power punchers get tired is they tend to hold their breath. When you're working with fighters, how do you like to tell them to breathe when they punch? Well, especially my power punchers is to breathe on strike, right? Um, if if anyone gets a chance to tune into Felder versus Kama Worthy, you think these these knees that are landing are uh, the the smack and the hiss that you hear, but it's it's Felder doing his karate, whatever that is, every time he lands, and it's and he's continuing to breathe. And you got a fighter in Felder who is like really heavy boned, but not the biggest puncher, but he's able to, and he never tires, but he's great with his elbows and he's great with his knees because he puts a hundred percent into those knees, especially. And when he's able to do so, he's breathing throughout. So sort of a, a commitment to the um, knowing that, what do they say? If a fighter can't see, he can't fight. If a fighter cannot breathe, he or she cannot fight. So, you know, while they are getting them to hit the bag and to continuously <clears throat> rather than just bench pressing the entire fucking time. And they look like they're about ready to have a stroke right in the <laughs> middle of a set, you know, breathe and release, release that power into the movement, release that breath into the movement. And then we reset regroup. And then you have other things like you see Don Dominic Cruz, when he does that little reset stance where he does the little huh, and he blows out while he does that. All that is very important, and we talked about what an amateur could take away from the Golovkin-Canelo fight, and that is pace and understanding that that breathing and controlling your breathing, controlling your rhythm, controlling your your aerobic and anaerobic output are all parts of this game. You know, it isn't just just bleed aggression, aggression, aggression. And if you get tired and then you lose and then you get caught near somebody, well, at least you tried. Well, yeah, I mean, there's some truth to that, but wouldn't you rather try really hard with a calculated approach and win and try to try super hard for only a minute and 45 seconds because that's all the, 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 the cardio output you could, you could generate with that kind of opponent in front of you, you tire, and then you get the absolute shit beat out of you for the next minute and a half. And you have to tap the strikes or whatever fuckery happens after that. And you say, Dana, I still think I deserve my 50 grand and he doesn't give it to you. And you go home fucking with half your pay. <laughs> my fault. I always turn this into that. <laughs> but, but that's my point is understanding how to control your breathing, how, how, to, how to pace yourself, all part of the game and all the higher, all our higher levels of this game. You know, it's just, it's just, it's just the way it is. You look at the conditioning of your uh, Max Holloway's, your Volkanovsky's, you look at the conditioning, um, of guys like GSP who tend not to tire, even though he wrestled for 25 straight minutes sometimes. You know, these guys who can push through uh, fighters like Felder, who made otherwise excellent fighters tire by trying an in-your-face approach. Hey, cardio, conditioning, breathing, understanding the fundamentals and solid foundational aspects of fighting and strength and conditioning will carry you a very long way in this sport. And if you have the it factor to be entertaining and the skills to match it and the athleticism to match it, well, fuck, man, that's a recipe for success in my book. You know how, whether it's the commentators or it's the coaches or maybe it's the fighters to themselves telling themselves to bite down on their mouth guard and just go. And sometimes you see that in training when people are just trying to finish out their workout or they're doing a bag workout and they're just doing punches to try to improve their cardio or finish a fight, right? They're doing some kind of scenario. They bite down on their mouth guard. But oftentimes what that means is when you're biting down on that mouth guard, 
you're biting down and holding your breath. So of course, you're going to turn bright red and purple because you're not breathing, right? So they don't realize that the reason why they're so tired isn't just because of the exertion. It's also because you've been holding your breath. You're, you're, you're exactly right. They've been holding their breath and they are already tensed and clenched, right? And it becomes habituated. Almost all the time, punching yourself to exhaustion and then flexing and screaming isn't making you better at anything except being tired. That's the only fucking thing it's doing. You want a lesson in how to fight tired when you're down? Watch Leon Edwards. Watch Leon Edwards when he knocks out Usman. He takes his time. He throws a little throwaway shots. He lines them up, throws some feints, realizing that Usman is tired too. And then he finds that little chip of a head kick up the left side. And he gets there by being present, not being hyper-aggressive. And yeah, hyper-aggressiveness will get you there every once in a while in a sport that has tiny little gloves. Um, but I don't think that's what you want to hang your hat on or hedge most of your bets on. Those fighters that have the ability to, to line up and find shots will find them if you haven't thrown timing and technique out the window for just pure spammy uh, aggression. Imagine if Leon Edwards knew he was down and he started just chasing after Usman with wild punches. That would have been the worst thing he could have done. And what would have happened? Usman would have fallen into his hips, taken him down, stayed on top. And then we'd had someone on the internet saying, uh, all Usman can do is wrestle. And (laughs) we wouldn't have the conversation we're having. It's going to be a a very anticipated rematch and an eventual trilogy fight, hopefully. And what is, what was also comeback of the fucking year. It was a great, great comeback from a fight that, you know, um, even though Edwards looks fantastic in the first round, the fight got away with him in the, the remaining three rounds. But he was present enough and composed enough and calm enough to find that shot. And that's what fighters need to do. In the days of punching until you're tired, watching form break, form and fundamental technique completely break and then telling that fighter to continue punching with (laughs) bad form for two and sometimes three minutes is uh, that's the way of the dodo man that shit is extinct it is dead it should no longer be part of the training process once form breaks you want to reset right and even if they're then have them shadow box without throwing power punches bringing everything back to their chin so that you can get solid fundamental defensive reaction when they are fatigued. So not everything in a fatigued state punches them out of position. They end up getting clipped because we have baby gloves in this shit. So, I mean, that's my style and that's, that's my philosophy. Others may differ and there might be some strength and conditioning coaches and some fight coaches that, I don't know, have some, some greater insights to fight science that will prove me wrong, but I haven't seen them yet. No. You know, <laughs> I'd love to see it. No. Because what's going to happen, right, is once their form breaks and you have them continue, now that bad form is going to be downloaded into their muscle memory. Now that's just how they punch. It just becomes habituated. Uh, Temporary break of form now becomes a permanent feature of how they punch. Absolutely. You've, You've programmed that glitch in the fucking matrix. You did it to them. By telling them to bite down their mouthpiece, I don't care, Just just throw until you can't throw anymore. I mean, maybe if you're in the top position and we're doing ground and pound and we need to, you know. <laughs> I guess that's the one time where punching form doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, just just let them go. Just let those hands go, I guess. And I get it. 
that I mean, there's going to be there's going to be complaints to like, an overly conservative style, but I mean, the fight the fight sports in combat sports have come so far that if you just if if you run at even the worst wrestler in this game that you just sprint at them trying to bomb them with right hook left hook right hook left hook they're, left hook, they're just going to fall into your hips and take you down like, even if they don't want to wrestle at all they're just going to take what's available especially if there's short time left so why would you fight them that way if that is your only path to vic- if you think that that's your only path to victory is a knockout why would you fight them in a way that's going to get you taken down so easily knowing that very few knockouts ever result of you being on your back so there needs to be a, a, a commitment to keeping the fight standing and sort of a you know a, a calculated assessment of how i find this shot you know something i was thinking about recently is 50 percent of the time you see a fight dominated by one fighter being on top ground and pounding the other fighter is that fighter having been initially rocked the first half of the round, and then the other fighter rushes in, to your point, just throwing these type of conditioning style haymaker punches while biting down on their mouth guard, and then they get taken down immediately. Any of those rounds that you've seen where you just remember one person ground and pounding the other person, it probably started with that person getting rocked. And five-minute rounds are a long time. So even if you won the first two and a half minutes by piecing that guy up, but he he in, he he you rock him and he lands on top of you because you got a little wild. Judges have pretty shitty memories. We've we've seen time and time again, whether it's in boxing or MMA, judging is pretty bad. So like if you expect them to have anything that more than a goldfish's brain, it's gonna be difficult for them to make an like an educated assessment and go with anyone that wasn't in that top position because that is the most easily observable and quantifiable for them. And it is the last thing that they've seen. So there is that um that recency bias of oh the last two and a half minutes is so and so on top of him like hitting him with the world's worst ground and pound i forgot that he got clipped with a three two like <laughs> and and literally if the other guy didn't completely lose his fucking mind and like swarm him with the world's worst count uh, um continuation of offense probably would have put him away but i remember this and this is the guy on top for the other two and a half minutes so and when there's only three rounds, you realize you don't want to just arbitrarily give up one of them because you made a huge mistake. You know? And good fighting tends to yield good results. Bad fighting, especially when you stop, start fighting other top 10 fighters, other top 20 fighters, world-class fighters. Shitty fighting doesn't normally work against them. You need to bring A-level shit. So, and I say it all the time. You know, world-class fighters need to be doing world-class shit. Sometimes getting clipped is like a gift for wrestlers because that gives them a moment to get in on their hips because the other guy is just running at them. Yeah, absolutely. And those that fighters, the wrestler that gets clipped, they start to lower their level anyway because their legs are falling. Their <laughs> legs are leaving them. So they just continue with that momentum and fall forward to the hips. And that gives them a second to readjust or maybe hit a little peek out or find an angle, a little, you know, a block to the far side and run that angle. And, uh, you know, you get an easy takedown and you're allowed to recover while maybe eating bad hammer fists from uh, or like shitty elbows while you're inside control. And they're trying to, you know, trying to score some points because they got a little bit over aggressive and you're recovering from that top position. Now, Sanhagen was impressive, but did he show you any vulnerabilities? Vulnerabilities? Um, You know, 
Well, let's start with what impressed me, I guess. You know, he, he's got the technique, athleticism, and fight intelligence to be champion. I, I swear by that. I'm sure of it. And I was really, really impressed, you know, as I said before, by his commitment to, commitment to wrestling and positioning, you know, though all the assholes complain about how boring these aspects of fighting are. Wrestling, position, all he did was put, whatever. But when Corey failed on the takedown attempts, he still used it to, to control position against the cage. And he scored with the elbows and knees from these positions. You know, and he stayed in control with some pretty, uh, pretty good knees and elbows in those positions and took away the explosiveness of song. You know, but where I did see a little bit of a vulnerability is when Sanhagen does want to throw hands coming forward. Um, he's got a nice double jab straight right, but he leaves that straight right out there long and strong, and he gets hit with a counter left hook every once in a while And when he's not immediately like, resetting his stance. And I don't think you want to be hanging around with Song because <laughs> he can hook. You know, he, he, he can throw that shot and he can throw it well. Um, but credit to, like I said, credit to the chin of, of Corey Sanhagen, because if he didn't have that chin, we might be having a different discussion at this point. Yeah, I noticed that too. It seems like he leaves it out there to occupy space. Not when you have a person who's as good at throwing hooks as Song. Yeah, and I don't think you want to do that against Song. And I get that that like some of these fighters have this little curl on the end of their right hand that Canelo does every once in a while when he's hitting pads, and you started to see um, Conor McGregor do it. But it's it's actually a flawed position. Like you don't want to roll down that body or roll down that punch because it's making you susceptible to the counter left hook, unless you are using that as a way to dip in for the left hook to the body, letting that sort of drag punch slide you down and find that position. And I'll say it again, Corey Sanhagen is one of the uh, one of the better left hookers to the body that I've seen in MMA. When he does it, he does it incredibly well. Um, and I love that punch for him. But, you know, when he does throw that right hand out there, whether it is the drag to set that shot up or not, he has a habit of dragging that or overextending and reaching with it or leaving it out there and being susceptible to the counter left hook. I call that zombie feet because ideally the way I like to tell people to do it is you want to step like a person. You want to step, step. You don't want to drag your feet like a zombie, right? So to your point, sometimes you step with your left, you throw that right, and then your back leg just kind of drags and you just drift forward, right? Yeah, and your shoulder and your, you, yep, everything starts to dip. Just like a zombie, you know, <laughs> yeah. zombies just drag and just, they kind of hunch and, and lean forward, right? And that's why they have to continue their dragging forward and walk like that because that's the only way to stop themselves from falling forward, right? So don't have zombie feet. Absolutely. Keep those feet underneath you. And then if you can keep your feet underneath you, your hips tend to stay underneath your shoulders and you you don't break form and you don't you don't lean and you don't overreach. And you have the ability to, to if you maintain stance, like stance is so important, stance and posture. If you maintain that stance, you can snap back. And you started to see uh, Corey, this is what I mean about real-time fight adjustments. He started to, he was still getting hit with a left hook in the third and fourth round, but his right hand was back to his chin every time and song was still laying that shot but a couple times he caught forearm and glove which you know like i said san hagan has a great chin and maybe you can eat two of them maybe you can eat three maybe you can eat five and maybe six and seven start to really you know make that difference and having your hand up and having them go off the glove or off your your wrist or forearm is a different story than if it's hitting you in the chin like a fifth sixth seventh or eighth time so when coaches are telling their pupils to 
keep their right hand up like they're holding a phone. It's not necessarily saying like that is the block itself, but you're creating an obstacle so that even if you do get hit there and you didn't even see it coming, at least you have something there so that you're taking a little bit off of that hook. Absolutely. And if a fighter is good enough to have to adjust their trajectory, there's some loss of power. And because of that, that kinetic chain is now having to adjust. And instead of it being like a fully extended whip running around and creating, I don't know what kind of force you would call that, um, but creating that rotational force where everything is sort of like locked into a fixed position or a fully extended position, now it has to adjust and you get some power loss, power leakage throughout that movement. So it's the difference between a, a punch dropping you and a punch just maybe hurting you or slightly rocking you a little bit that you can fight through. And optics are everything. Optics are everything. And it's one of the reasons why so many people think Triple G was, I mean, I'm hearing people say Triple G was in this third fight. I'm like, ah, I mean, I mean <laughs> not being out of it doesn't make you necessarily in it, you know? So you know, he only landed two more jabs than I did in that first round, and I didn't throw any. So, <laughs> you know, let, let, let that stand for a minute. So what you're saying is when you're in good stance and you have good hand positioning, even if they are able to get around your guard, the fact that they have to adjust around that right hand protecting your chin, they'll lose a little bit off of that punch. That might make that difference between getting knocked out or not. Absolutely. Absolutely. And especially in boxing where that it's, it's a bigger glove, a greater surface area for both protection, for protecting and hitting. Now you can even adjust that, that trajectory of that shot a little more because it's sliding off of the glove as opposed to MMA where it looks like it's it's landing a little more flush because there's a much a smaller surface area both from the the striking projectile and the fist being thrown at you and the protective mechanism of the hand at the chin right lesser surface area um on for both so i think it it, it matters in both sports but you know um you probably notice it a little more in, in boxing because of the greater surface area. Or maybe you don't notice it as much because you just, all it is is sweat and a, a splat. So you know, at the same time, whatever can keep your fighter standing in a better position and the optics of the judges not being rocked, not being in a position where they can load up on three or four of them because the, the altered trajectory isn't allowing them to put like the normal sequences of punches together. So. Again, stance, defensive responsibility, and just little in a game of of inches. Let's be honest, it's really centimeters at this point. Number one, we should be using the metric system anyway. These things matter. They really do matter. And if your hand's already up or you're in good posture, good stance, good position, well, your ability to continue fighting both offensively and defensively in smart sequential movements is going to be improved if you have a stronger foundation and greater footing. All right. That's all we have for this one. Thank you, Jason. Always a pleasure, brother. And catch you all next time. All right. Thank you, folks. If you like this episode and you like what we do, support us on Patreon. We also have the Liberation Martial Arts Program if you want to train with us from wherever you are. There's lots of techniques, exercises, theory, pedagogy, and even political theory, believe it or not. You can also find Liberation Martial Arts online on our Patreon. You can find Southpaw merch at our store. You can find all pertinent links on the show notes. With all that said, thanks for listening.